Hey, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Greatest Podcast in American History. My name is Dylan Shearer, and I'll be your host for today's episode, as I am the host for every episode of this podcast. Today, we're talking about the freedom movement in the United States, sometimes known as the civil rights movement. We mentioned it a little bit uh, in last week's episode, but today we're sort of going full force into it. Uh, So we're going to cover a couple of things as a result of that. But before we do that, I just want to thank uh, Spencer uh, for providing me with a new mic. It was a wonderful gift. Thank you so much. So hopefully the audio quality will be getting a little better on these things than they have been for the first couple episodes. So enjoy my dulcet tones while you can. So on today's podcast, we're going to cover a few things. One, uh, sort of the idea of the long civil rights movement. I alluded to this in the previous episode, uh, but we'll talk a little bit about that. Talk about the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC. Uh, Freedom Summer, and then riffs in the freedom movement as well, right? Sort of watching some of the cleavages that appear there as the movement goes on. So some major questions here for this podcast episode, some things to consider, some stuff I'll directly address, but then stuff, some stuff we'll look at sort of orthogonally to use the to use the big term. Uh, so why do we think of the freedom of movement as occurring just in the 50s and 60s, right? There were people clearly, obviously working for the freedom of black people and all uh, non-white people in the United States for a very long time. So why do we just sort of put that into the 50s and 60s, sort of shoehorn it into just those two decades? Then sort of bigger questions of what types of success did the freedom movement see? What were the tactics and strategies of the freedom movement? And how did the Cold War affect the civil rights movement, right? That was a question from last week that we'll be sort of looking at again this week in a little more in depth. So for today's uh, person of the of the week, right, we're going to be looking at Bayard Rustin. Uh, Bayard Rustin was sort of a key organizer of the freedom movement, uh, considered by a lot of people to be the, the brains, the, you know, organizer behind the March on Washington, that sort of big uh, cumulative moment of of the freedom movement that a lot of people think about when they think about the civil rights movement, about the freedom movement, right? It was sort of in, you know, it's in Forrest Gump. It's in a lot of things uh, that talk about the freedom movement, right? The, the march on Washington. And he was sort of the brains behind that, even if his name doesn't get thrown out a lot. He's a close confidant, uh, an advisor to Martin Luther King Jr. He was also, uh, and this is sort of where uh, issues spring up within the movement, he was a former member of the Communist Party and a gay man as well. Uh, He got his start organizing with the Youth Communist League and eventually became the youth organizer for A. Phillips Randolph's March on Washington. Remember, we talked about that um, part of, you know, the double V movement during World War II. uh, And he sort of helped or was the youth organizer for that. I uh, spent two years in prison for refusing to fight in World War II, right? He also helped co-found CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, uh, and served in a chain gang after being arrested during CORE's Journey of Reconciliation. The Journey of Reconciliation uh, was something done by CORE to test the Supreme Court rule rulings that barred segregation in interstate travel. Uh, so sort of like trying to, you know, Supreme Court had done this and they were trying to put it into actual effect. Uh, It also provided the model for the Freedom Rides of 1961, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Rustin, uh, despite sort of like being this incredible organizer, right, really great activist, uh, faced constant discrimination both inside and outside uh, the freedom movement for being openly gay. Um, And Walter, in 
there's a picture of him in July 1982 with his partner, Walter Nagel, um, right? So he was sort of like, he faced constant discrimination, both from the right and then from his own movement um, for being both communist uh, and gay. But sort of a really important figure in the in the freedom movement, right, despite not being talked about a lot. So uh, this idea of the long civil rights movement that I mentioned a couple times here, this that title, that idea comes from a 2005 article by Jacqueline Dowd Hall, uh, which was called The Long Civil Rights Movement and the Political Uses of the Past. This is sort of like, this is a very nerd thing, but this is one of like the biggest articles, most important articles in the study of American history, right? One of the most downloaded JSTOR articles ever, right? Sort of really, really important for anybody doing 20th century American history. It's like one of the articles, basically every grad student uh, since 2005 has read this article. And what Dowd Hall argues in The Long Civil Rights Movement is that the civil rights movement, you know, the 50s and 60s one, didn't start with the Montgomery bus boycott and end with the Voting Rights Act of 1965, right? That's sort of the usual timeline. He's just saying, no, that's wrong. To really understand that movement, you need to take a much longer view, right? Uh, basically, just arguing black people in the United States have been struggling for freedom since the beginning of slavery in the Americas and limiting it to the Montgomery bus boycott and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, sort of you're just looking at a really small part of that fight, right? So for evidence, you know, is that like people like Rosa Parks were fight, were doing organized fights for civil rights far before the Montgomery bus boycott, right? It wasn't that Rosa Parks just woke up one day and decided to fight for civil rights, right? She'd been doing it her whole life and so had other people. So that's sort of an important idea uh, in this sort of podcast series, right? I have sort of, I tried to like break that a little bit, but um, I clearly am not doing a good job, right? But sort of that's something to keep in mind, right? That despite this period of the 50s and 60s, that's really known as a civil rights movement, it was going on a lot, a lot of times before the 50s. And then continued on way after the 60s as well, right? It wasn't just limited to this 20 year period. Um, So the freedom movement and the Cold War are also two things that are really, really closely tied together, right? A lot of times they're treated as separate things, right? If you had the Cold War and then a couple, a couple in a class, if you're in a class, a couple days later, they'll talk about the civil rights movement, right? But they were going on at the same time and really, really influenced each other. Much of the rhetoric of the freedom movement was sort of directly influenced by the rhetoric of the Cold War, right? They were people, these people were living during the, in the United States during the Cold War. There was no way you could avoid the question of the Cold War, right? Uh, And so the freedom movement would ask questions like, if the U.S. was fighting for freedom abroad, then why did black people not have those freedoms at home, right? So sort of those similar ideas to the double V campaign, right? If you're fighting fascists in Germany, then why... Why isn't there freedom at home from, you know, racism and segregation? That same question sort of applied to the freedom freedom movement at the same time, right? If we're supposedly, supposedly fighting for democracy and freedom around the world, then why don't black people have it in the United States? The USSR also sort of addressed this, right? They released lots of uh, pieces of propaganda uh, uh, aimed at black people in the United States, right? There's a, a famous one of you know, a black man sort of clearly injured, uh, bleeding everywhere, uh, and it's marked, labeled, you know, USA citizen, right? So sort of this, the USSR tried to sort of like use this propaganda machine to show this sort of contrast in the United States, this truly sort of, you know, rhetorically, rhetorically backward sort of thing going on in the United States, right? This is clear split in what the in what the US talked about and then what the US actually did, right? And sort of what came out of this is that the the politics of the Cold War sort of allowed for many of the gains 
to be that were made in terms of equality under the law, right? Uh, the freedom rights movement, as we'll talk about, made a lot of gains in uh, sort of this de jure quality treatment, right? This idea that under the law, everyone is equal. But using this Cold War rhetoric also limited the scope of changes that the freedom movement could make, right? If you look at Beta Rustin, uh, as a communist, during this sort of Red Scare period, this really anti-communist period, right? Uh, he would have had, you know, much broader economic equality goals that could have been in the freedom movement, but sort of using this Cold War politics made it so that ideas like that weren't really pushed forward at all uh, and were, were shunted to the side, gotten rid of uh, in favor of this sort of pursuing this sort of terms this equality under the law idea, right? So this sort of you have this this bargain that was made almost saying, well, you will use this Cold War rhetoric and in return for the sort of like, you know, getting equal treatment under the law will also, but we'll, we'll, we'll push aside anybody making sort of grander claims for economic equality or things like that, right? Um, so, you know, not, not people sort of actually making a specific bargain on this, but that's sort of what the using Cold War rhetoric allowed. Uh, so some of the tactics of, of the freedom movement, right? Some of the, one of the early sort of most successful things, especially in the 1960s, were sit-ins. Uh, we talked about some of the 1950s stuff in last week's podcast, the Montgomery bus boycott, uh, and some other, some other like early events of, of the, the civil rights, the freedom movement. Um, but in the 1960s, sort of the intensity and the number of civil rights protests increased around the U.S. This increase in part was led by college students, right? A lot of very young, early 20s, late teens students uh, pushing forward a lot of the civil rights movement, the freedom rights movement. Uh, in February 1st, 1960, four black freshmen at the North Carolina Agricultural and Technical College began a sit-in at the segregated Woolworths lunch counter in Greensboro. Greensboro, North Carolina. Yeah, they refused to leave until they had been served coffee. A Woolworths at that time, sort of a department store, but also a store that served lunch, served breakfast, served coffee. Uh, and they normally would not serve black people at the lunch counter, right? There is a segregated Woolworths, uh, so there's a white section and a black section. Uh, and these four black students went to the white section. Uh, instead of instead of serving uh, these four black students, who were Franklin McCain, Joseph McNeil, Ezeal Blair Jr., and David Richmond, uh, they shut down the store. Within three days of that, over 300 students had joined them in this protest. Uh, had joined the Greensboro for this protest, right? Continually going up to the counter at Woolworths, sitting down, waiting for them to be served, and then having the manager shut it down instead. And there are sort of pictures of this everywhere. Uh, and these types of protests spread across the South. Uh, in order to sort of keep making money on these lunch counters, uh, the businesses soon desegregated um, their lunch counters, not without feed, not without pushback, right? These weren't just sort of like, these were dangerous uh, activities for a lot of the people doing the sit-ins. People got really hot coffee dumped on them, physical uh, and verbal threats against their lives, right? So it wasn't just sort of, it happened, but eventually a lot of lunch counters across the South were desegregated as a result of these sit-ins. And in the wake of these sit-ins, sort of the success of, of these events, uh, several students from multiple colleges around the U.S. formed uh, SNCC, also known as the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. SNCC is how you, how to, how you pronounce that. 
Uh, they helped, SNCC helped spread this sit-in movement throughout the Upper South. Young people sort of became, as a result of SNCC, became the key to many of the successes of the freedom movement. You also get people like Ella Baker, who at the time was working for Martin Luther King Jr.'s organization, the SCLC, sort of acting as an early mentor to SNCC, right? Helping sort of train these young activists uh, in what they were doing and helping sort of push for them to get really involved in this movement. You get people like Diane Nash, Julian Bond, Marion Barry, the later uh, mayor of D.C., John Lewis, uh, the recently deceased uh, representative, uh, Kwame Torre, and others uh, also all got their start in, uh, in SNCC. Kwame Torre, also known, uh, formerly known as Stokely Carmichael. Right? So this is a very, very important group to the freedom movement. Some, some very uh, luminary names in there. Uh, following the successes of the sit-ins, uh, the movement didn't sort of just stop with them. Uh, more and more protest movements built up around the city. In 1961, CORE, that group that, uh, that Baird Russin got arrested for walking with uh, in their um, the Congress of Racial Equality on their journey of reconciliation, also uh, began to start the, the Freedom Ride campaign, right? Sort of restarting its earlier efforts to desegregate interstate transportation. Uh, and what had to do this, they organized Freedom Rides into the South, uh, using both white and black riders, right, to, to support each other. Uh, they told the FBI, they told President Kennedy, and the Justice Department that they were doing this, right? So it wasn't just sort of a surprise, a shock that this started happening. They, they told people, uh, people in charge uh, who could protect them, uh, but they were not protected by these people. On May 14th, 1961, one of the Greyhound buses that these Freedom Riders were on was bombed by white Southerners, uh, organized white Southerners coming out to bomb this uh, Greyhound bus, right, to stop them. Uh, from coming down into the South. The local hospital refused to help the injured riders. They refused to treat them. Law enforcement, including Eugene Bull Connor, uh, one of the most notorious racist uh, leaders of the police in the South, did not prosecute the bombers, even though they knew who they were. Uh, Court gave up the, of the work of this, right? They is The violence, they refused to put people in the path of violence, but SNCC, continued the freedom rides despite these bombings. Another one of their buses was attacked by hundreds of Southerners as well, right? Uh, showing that the South and people in the North too, uh, but especially the people in the South would use violence to stop uh, the freedom movement, right? At all costs, they would kill uh, to do that. These freedom rides became national and international news, right? News around the world. People trying to do this, especially in the light of the Cold War, right? And all the U.S.'s Cold War rhetoric about fighting for freedom and democracy around the world. This made the U.S. look absolutely horrible, right? If its own citizens couldn't ride buses to another part of the country without facing bombings, that just looks horrible everywhere. Uh, newly independent African nations recently having you know, gotten rid of their colonial rulers, um, threatened to turn to communism, uh, which put pressure on the federal government, right? Saying these African nations were, were more than willing to accept money from uh, the USSR, the Soviet Union, uh, as well as China at the time, and the U.S. did not want that to happen, right? Not necessarily for reasons of freedom and democracy, maybe for reasons of resource extraction, but uh, regardless, on September, because of that sort of pressure, on September 22nd, 1962, the Interstate Commerce Commission formally ended legal segregation on interstate travel. Uh, similar tactics to the Freedom Ride, right? Freedom Ride tactics would be used time and again to sort of regular successes, right? Sort of testing the limits, putting into putting into action these actual limits. Um, 
and forcing forcing groups to formally end segregation. And as a result of sort of the freedom rides and earlier actions, the freedom movement starts to see some national successes. Other groups besides SNCC, besides the SCLC, worked to end other forms of segregation across the United States. Many groups were using national media to great success, right? The development of the television and the increased use of television by many people allowed these images to come into places all across the uh, United States where they might not have been seen before, right? You you hear stories of, um, you know, white people who may have been sort of, you know, vaguely, uh, vaguely against segregation or whatever, but weren't really pushed into action until they saw some of these images on TV. And the same goes uh, for other communities as well within the United States. Sort of, you, you see the use of TV technology captures and disseminates sort of the violence of segregation across the entire country, showing it to some people for the first time. Uh, and leader, it wasn't just by accident, right? Leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. were very aware of the power that TV had to sort of broadcast their message, right? Uh, you get people like President uh, John F. Kennedy saying that sort of images of, you know, dogs attacking nonviolent protesters in places like Birmingham made him sick, right? Um, you, for, same for photography, right? Uh, there, the, that sort of horribly iconic image of a German shepherd lunging to bite, you know, this young black boy was disseminated all across the United States. Uh, and, you know, there's reports of, of Mr. about President Kennedy, like getting disturbed, quote unquote, right? Uh, telling telling Bobby Kennedy, uh, who was the Attorney General at the time, to you know we have to look down into that matter, right? Uh, they sort of Kennedy sort of says it made him sick, right? Uh, saying it's intolerable because of because of these images. Um, you get other actions as well, sometimes from um, individuals as opposed to groups. Uh, 1962, James Meredith sought to become the first black man to enroll at the University of Mississippi. He tried to enroll in their history program. Uh, he was met with violent resistance. President Kennedy went, Kennedy went on television denouncing this violent resistance against James Meredith uh, and eventually set, sent federal troops to ensure that Meredith could go to classes and to quell the, the sort of the riots that had started trying to stop him from going to school. Uh, James Meredith would uh, eventually later uh, start to walk across the South by himself, uh, trying to show the, how sort of danger, it, dangerous it was for a black man to do that. Uh, he didn't tell anyone he was going to do this, and sort of civil rights leaders were really pissed at him for doing this because they had to devote a lot of resources to this project they didn't know about to try to actually sort of keep him safe. Once he got all this media attention uh, on this walk, Meredith was eventually shot, uh, but did uh, survive that shooting. Uh, Project C was also launched by the SCLC in 1963. Project C was a program to desegregate Birmingham, one of the most segregated cities in the United States. Project C, the C stands for confrontation. They organized marches uh, all across Birmingham. More than 20,000 marchers were arrested, including thousands of children. Uh, Bull Connor ordered the peaceful marchers attacked with dogs, cattle prods, and high-powered water hoses. Hoses. These are where some of the most sort of devastating, awful pictures of the civil rights movement come about, and where you get a lot of national media attention. Martin Luther King Jr. was jailed during Project C, uh, and while in jail, he wrote letter from a Birmingham jail, one of his most famous and powerful 
letters, I think here. He writes in it, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than justice, right? This idea that it's really those people who are standing on the sidelines, not doing anything about this, right? Those white moderates who are saying, well, MLK, uh, maybe you're right, but you're you're being too mean about this. You're being too forward. You have to let this move forward slowly, which was a lot of people. Um, and the King Jr. did not have positive uh, recognition among white people until after his death. Uh, most people hated him, thought he was sort of annoying, right, to in their face. And he's saying, you guys are more the problem than the KKK is, right? At least with the KKK, we know where we stand. But with white moderates, um, you're much more hurting us than you actually are doing any good to us. Uh, national media, as I mentioned, broadcast those awful images of Bull Connor's attacks on these peaceful protesters, broadcasted them across the world, not just the United States. Uh, the violence, though, didn't stop immediately. It only got worse after the 16th Street Baptist Church was bombed during a church service. Four black girls were killed as a result of that, as well as several other being injured. National pressure was sort of mounting, and eventually uh, the SCLC won Project C. Um, the, the big win was that black people were now able to use public spaces and also get city jobs, right? Something that they had been stopped from getting before Project C. Um, the cost of this victory was tremendously high, something that should, should seem from day one people should have, but people had to die because of this, right? Sort of a horrible, horrible thing that, that was a win for SCLC, but at an awful, awful cost because of this white intransience to any sort of movement forward for the freedom movement. Uh, the March on Washington, sort of this big big moment was that one of the things to come next in 1963. The SCLC and other organizations organized a big march on Washington to push for federal rights legislation, right? Sort of doing the thing A. Philip Randolph had done before that and the Bonus Army had done before that, right? Sort of this march on Washington, this big, big protest. Uh, The formal name of it is the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, right? So still sort of putting some of this economic stuff in there as well, that it wasn't just about sort of racial equality, but also about economic equality. If uh, while they weren't sort of making you know communist demands, they were they were demanding sort of the right to be able to get jobs with everybody else. And on as a part of that march on Washington on August twenty eighth, nineteen sixty three, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his "I Have a Dream" speech at the Lincoln Memorial, uh, the most famous speech in American history, sort of hands down, and a very very powerful powerful speech. Uh, About 250,000 people attended the event in D.C., so a quarter of a million people, a huge, huge, huge event. There were some things behind the scenes that don't get talked about. Several black women were excluded uh, excluded and prohibited from speaking at this event. Uh, A lot of the male organizers um, did not want them to speak and so refused to let them speak or only let them speak on quote-unquote women's issues. Uh, and then several of the more radical labor ideas that people like Bayard Rustin tried to get in there were also excised as well, right? So some sort of more moderate people in the civil rights movement trying to trying to curb uh, some of the leftist pushes of, of people in the movement as well. Uh, and that sort of leads to rifts, right? You get some rifts after the civil, the March on Washington, some sort of rifts appear in the freedom movement. Uh, Malcolm X disapproved of the March on Washington, calling it the farce on Washington. Many women leaders uh, in the movement who had been, you know, sort of were tremendously disappointed uh, and disapproved with their treatment, angry about their treatment during the march, as did many of the more radical leaders. 
Um, John Lewis, who was the current leader of SNCC at that moment, uh, disapproved of the edits made to his speech. Uh, right, SNCC wanted more rapid change as sort of as a whole, uh, not just sort of pushes for moderate legislation. Uh, and sort of this dissent would begin to grow across the country within people in the freedom movement. Much after the March on Washington, much of SNCC's activism started going towards a project called Freedom Summer, uh, which was launched in 1964, with SNCC, CORE, and some other organizations organizing a massive voter registration drive in Mississippi, right? So uh, signing up black people to vote. Thousands of black and white activists, many of them college age, went to the South to organize freedom schools and register people to vote, right? Sort of this was, and this was very intensive training. Uh, they wouldn't just let anybody sign up for this, right? People had to know the consequences and they wouldn't let sort of, you know, hotheads doing this who might get into sort of start physical altercations. Uh, so it was very much this very intense training. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer was an organizer for Freedom Summer, helped uh, people down south get homes and then also find people to talk to. Uh, these Freedom Summer activists were met with extreme, extreme violence. KKK members working in concert with state officials, so working with state officials, killed three core members in Mississippi's in Mississippi. Uh, two of them were white Jewish men from New York who had come down to help. Um, so sort of this awful, awful violence against these Freedom Summer members. They re- they actually sort of registered relatively few people to vote. But what sort of the bigger result of this was that they trained thousands of organizers uh, around the country and also helped unite the civil rights movement across the United States. Sort of a turning point movement, right? Getting all these groups together and introducing thousands of organizers to the sort of freedom movement community, right? Sort of that was sort of the big result of this Freedom Summer. On a more... on sort of a, another national level, right, looking more at the federal government prior to his assassination, which we'll talk about in next week's podcast. Uh, President Kennedy had announced his intention to put forward a national civil rights bill. Uh, he was assassinated before that could happen. But pre- the new president, Lyndon B. Johnson, LBJ, took up this drive after he was sworn in. Uh, he surprised a lot of people with his stance, right? LBJ was from Texas. Uh, he's a Texas Democrat, which you don't really see anymore, but sort of, um, you know, thought that like he should continue. He wasn't, hadn't been elected, wanted to sort of continue Kennedy's um, intentions, right, in his in his first, as, as, as the new president. But it wasn't just sort of this thing that he did. He also clearly, at least on some level, believed in it. He was very, very instrumental and worked very hard to get this passed. Uh, and he, the sort of thing that came out of it was a 24th Amendment passed in January 1964, which outlawed the use of poll taxes in federal elections. Uh, and this was extended to state elections in 1966, right? So making it a lot easier uh, for a lot more people, especially uh, non-white people, to vote in, in elections. Uh, LBJ also helped usher other pieces of uh, civil rights legislation into law. One of them was the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which went through Congress, passed the House on February 10th, 1964, and it passed the Senate in June after Strom Thurmond tried and failed to filibuster it. His filibuster failed, uh, and LBJ signed it into law on July 2nd, 1964. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 outlawed all discrimination in use of public facilities based on color, religion, sex, and national origin. Uh, it also created the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, which uh, sort of tries to tries to make sure that there is uh, equal opportunities for hiring based on race. But the violence still continued against these organizers, people fighting for freedom in the United States. Uh, this wasn't the end of the freedom, freedom movement, right? Sort of sometimes the so passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 gets labeled as the end of the freedom movement. That is really not the case. 
Freedom summer workers continued to face violence from all corners. Black churches and homes were being bombed across the United States. The head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, refused to investigate these bombings. Um, at the same time, was heavily surveilling the SCLC and Martin Luther King Jr. At one point, the FBI sent a letter to King telling him to commit suicide. Uh, it was supposed to be from just some random person, but it was found out later that the FBI actually wrote and sent this letter, right? So horrible, horrible stuff the FBI was doing. Constant surveillance, constant illegal surveillance on, on lots of times against uh, sort of any and anybody and everyone connected to the freedom uh, freedom movement, right? So this horrible, horrible role by the FBI played in this. The splits continue sort of to widen within the movement as well. Many activists, as a result of all this violence against them, constant surveillance begin carrying guns for protection, something that is legal in the United States. Many groups also begin to acknowledge the need for self-defense, pushing back against King's hardline nonviolent stance, right? Martin Luther King sort of famously... Uh, talking about nonviolent resistance. Some people are pushing back against that, uh, right? Saying that when we're facing all this violence, we don't want to just die uh, and get, you know, beat. Uh, We do have a right to sort of defend ourselves. Uh, And for many, as a result of this split, there were now two freedom movements, one that pushed for ending all legal segregation and then one that pushed for true economic, social, and political freedom for all black people, right? Uh, the first, that first that ending that was pushing for ending legal segregation was more successful. Uh, and the second was sort of less so, but sort of still very equally important. Uh, people like Fred Hampton uh, and the Chicago Black Panther Party were part of that part of that second movement. And we'll talk more about them in some later episodes. You also get groups like the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, uh, sort of led by Fannie Lou Hamer and other activists uh, in Mississippi in 1964, formed this party, the MFDP. Uh, The Democratic Party in Mississippi was still segregated, right? Would not allow uh, black people uh, to hold leadership positions or be in it at all. And so the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party traveled to the 1964 Democratic National Convention to try and be seated as representatives from Mississippi, saying, we're the real Democratic Party. You know, the other one won't let us in. LBJ tried to compromise by seating both groups, but many civil rights leaders felt really betrayed by this, right? LBJ was supposed to be on their side, but here he was supporting this really racist white Mississippi Democratic Party. And as a result of this, white segregationists also began leaving the party, right? So LBJ sort of loses on both fronts to this compromise. You get another big piece of legislation, uh, the Voting Rights Act, uh, between January In March of 1965, SCLC and SNCC led big marches in Selma against laws that prevented black people from voting. State troopers attacked the marchers, injuring many of them. And then on March 25th, KKK members killed Viola Liuzzo, a white woman and mother of five who was helping people register to vote. Right. So another death of a white person helping someone else to vote. And as a result of this, uh, sort of the pressure from this, August 6th, 1965, LBJ signed the Voting Rights Act into law, which sort of, you know, ended all voting discrimination, supposedly, against black people. And the number of black people registered to vote in the South flew through the roof after this. Uh, the, but the freedom movement sort of continues on after this, right? A lot of times you hear about this as being the end. This 1965 Voting Rights Act as being the end of the civil rights movement. This is truly not the case. And we'll continue to talk about this in future episodes. 
uh, the start of the fight continues on to this day, right? Uh, after 1965, though, uh, the divides over strategy and tactics did continue to become larger and larger, though both sides continued to work together at times. Leaders such as Malcolm X and groups like the Black Panther Party would begin to grow uh, in the numbers, especially, though the SCLC and Martin King Jr. continued to work around the country. Uh, so some conclusions here for this episode. Uh, the civil rights movement was heavily influenced by the Cold War, as I mentioned, right? Sort of both getting gains from it, but then also sort of decreasing the scope of what those gains could be. Uh, the civil rights movement is not just something that happened in the 50s and 60s, right? The late 50s, early 60s. It happened far before that and far after that. Uh, there did begin to be splits in the party and sort of the freedom movement over tactics and strategy, what the ultimate goals of the movement were and how to accomplish them. Uh, but sort of in the 60s did see many successes for uh, legal equality at the federal and state level in the 60s. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. Next week, we will talk about the Great Society um, and have a great rest of your day.